Thank you, Sam and Samettes, or Sam and Friends, maybe. Good evening, gentlemen. Wow, no ladies and the sanctuary. It must be boys' night out. I mean that in a good way. All right. Um, your mercy triumphs over judgment. Can you think of anything better than that? I don't know. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. Well, tonight, we put these on. I have old eyes. It's my turn tonight. And uh, we continue uh, in our Gospel of John, uh, chapter 6. In particular, verses 15 through 40. And before we get started, I'd like to just quickly summarize what we learned last week. Because I think it will greatly help to set up our section of scripture tonight. So up to this point, Jesus has these crowds of people following him. They've witnessed his signs and his miracles. And he's been speaking with authority. They've witnessed the feeding of the masses of the crowds with the five loaves and the two fish. And even acknowledged that he was the prophet that had come into the world. Right there in chapter 6, verse 14. We saw that last week. It says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, when you add the fact that many in Israel were always eager to throw off the yoke of Rome, Jesus seemed to them to be just the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. A Messiah that would be very useful to them. One who would be able to meet their every physical need. He just fed them miraculously. He could perform miracles, right? Perfect, they think. And of course, in their mind, surely he would deliver them from their bondage to Rome. So before we go forward tonight, I want you to remember the intentions of these people that we're going to look at tonight towards Jesus as we look at our text. So we're in John 6, 15 through 40. I'm going to read the section. Please bear with me. It's, it's lengthy, but very needful. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Father, we come before you. In Jesus' name tonight, Lord, Father, we ask that you cleanse our hearts from sin, Father, that we'd be right before you now. Lord, I pray for each man here tonight, 
Lord, I know that each one of us is going through something different. Father, I pray that your word would come alive tonight, that you'd fill me with your spirit. Father, that you direct this talk. And Lord, give me wisdom. We pray for the ladies, Lord, that you would also bless them and that you would keep your hand over the rest of the VBS this week, Lord. Father, we love you. We ask that you just open our hearts now. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting in verse 15, down through 21, we'll take that section first. The crowds, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed to a mountain by himself alone. So the crowds were about to come and take Jesus by force. That sounds kind of weird to me. Um, To make him king. And what does the scripture say that he does here? He leaves. Now, I don't know how well any of you handle popularity uh, or praise from other people. But Jesus does the exact opposite of what human nature and the natural man would do. He leaves. He leaves the attention and the focus that's on him. And he goes to a mountain by himself. What would any of us have done in that situation? Chances are, if people had come to me and wanted to make me, you know, a popular hero or nonetheless a king, would I let them twist my arm? I don't think so. But Jesus withdrew to be in communion with his father. Now, there's a very important reason why Jesus declined this crown that they were offering him. He declined it because he knew it was not the crown that he was destined to wear. They wanted a king who would deliver them from the grips of Rome. They wanted a king who could fill their bellies. And they wanted a king and a Messiah who would be, who could be useful to them. Jesus didn't come into this world to be useful. He came to feed our souls with himself as we'll see later in the text. Now, there's no doubt in my mind at all that if he did receive the crown that they were offering him, I believe Israel would have rallied around him. No questions asked. But he knew this was not the time for a crown. He chose the will of God and the cross to come and wanted nothing to do with the crown of man. Now, there are a lot of Christians, and I use the term very, very loosely today, that 
are really not willing to follow Christ's example of this. What they are willing to do is to take a man-made crown before they live a crucified life in Christ. What they do is they compromise a beautiful relationship with the Lord and substitute it with a crown before they're willing to take the cross. I don't know why they do that. I have a suspicion it's because the life of the cross involves sacrifice. It involves hardship. It involves molding and shaping. All the things that we don't like. They say those things aren't comfortable. The life of the cross involves hardship. It won't help me achieve and attain the goals and desires I have in life. So I'm just going to receive the praise of men. We can give each other crowns, pat each other on the back, and tell each other how great we are. That's much more comfortable than presenting my body as a living living sacrifice. Jesus didn't come, guys, to be a useful Messiah and help us achieve the goals and desires we had before we were born again. He came to change us. It's called the new birth. There is an old preacher. He's dead now, been dead for many, many years, uh, by the name of A.W. Tozer. And uh, he was a very straight-talking preacher, uh, much like our own pastor. And... While I was on the subject of king, you know, crowns came up and and I stumbled upon something he said. And I'm going to share that with you. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, pretty, pretty loosely. But he said, if you receive the crown before you take the cross, you'll look at it and it will shine and sparkle. Full of the gems and jewels of the praise of men. But upon closer inspection, you realize when you see it, it's really not made of precious metal at all. It's made of tin. The gems and jewels that look so good at a distance are imitation. Instead of the true crowns we'll receive at our reward, you will flip it over and read the inscription on it, made in hell. But this is what happens when you want the product before enduring the process. There are plenty of churches and teachers that will lay out the red carpet for you to take the easy way. They will tell you that it's okay. It's not okay. They're liars. Now, here the people had already acknowledged Jesus as a prophet. We see this at the woman at the well in chapter 4. We see it with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and then right here in our chapter in verse 14. And what these people wanted to do is they wanted to take Jesus 
And they wanted to catapult him into being their king. They've acknowledged him as a prophet, and now they want to move him into being a king. Well, they are forgetting something very important. Now, we know that Jesus was the only person to ever fulfill the three roles by which men would represent the people to God. Right? Prophet, priest, and king. They've already acknowledged him as a prophet, and now they want to take him from prophet to king. They're forgetting that there's a role in between. The role of priest. And the priesthood involves sacrifice. And that is what has not yet happened. So I want you to keep your finger here in the Gospel of John. And I want you to flip over to the book of Leviticus. I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, he's going to Leviticus. All right. But this is really important. Go to Leviticus chapter 16. guys there okay so Leviticus 16 is all about the preparation for the high priest uh, identifying the sacrifices making atonement atonement for the tabernacle for his family for the whole congregation of Israel now go to verse 17 and read verse 17 it says There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. So how is the priest instructed to go into the holy? How is he instructed to go in there? Alone, right? There should be no man in there. Now go back to John chapter 6. Look at verse 15. How does Jesus go into the mountain? He departed to a mountain by himself alone. Interesting. Jesus is fulfilling the role of priest in the proper way, just as Aaron was instructed to do in Leviticus 16. Pretty cool, huh? Now, what do you suppose Jesus was doing in the mountain all by himself alone? I think that's the best guess, right? He's praying. Our text doesn't tell us what he was doing. But when you go to Mark 6 and Matthew 14, it tells us that he went to pray. I think we could all pretty much come to that conclusion. If you read further in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, they give us more insight into this situation we're about to look at. So keep that in mind, and we'll get back to that in a minute. 
Verse 16, And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So the disciples are waiting for Jesus to go back to Capernaum. They're waiting for him to go back with them in their boat, but he's nowhere to be found. It's getting dark. They need to get home. So they get in their boat and they set off. The sea becomes violent because a great wind gets stirred up. When they're in the middle of the sea in a storm, in the dark, and they're probably thinking, what are we going to do? Jesus, where are you? We were just with you. You fed all these people. You took care of us. Now we're on this violent sea. The waves are crashing. The wind is blowing. You're nowhere to be found. Then they see Jesus walking on the sea toward them. And they were afraid. Now, I can understand this. Uh, I think if you saw somebody walking on the ocean in a dark storm, in the middle of chaos, you would be afraid too. Right? Remember, these guys were seasoned fishermen. They knew this body of water. They knew their boats, and they were afraid. It says, then they gladly, or I'm sorry, Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they gladly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at its destination. This whole event here that we're looking at, is a spiritual picture of our lives, our present lives as believers. We all know that life can be trying at times. Has anybody never experienced difficulty? When we're struggling, we're facing that difficulty and doubts, and things seem like they can't get any worse. When we're in our own boat on the sea of our own life, and it gets dark and stormy, and we think, God, where are you? Have you ever been there? I know I have many, many times. We begin to feel like the guys in the boat. Jesus, where are you? It's dark. It's stormy. We're afraid. We want to go home. Help. They were on their way home. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John, all three Gospels agree that the miracle of Jesus walking on the water took place right after he fed the crowds of people. Now, I've come to know and learn that it's really important to read the other Gospels' accounts of what you're studying because they go hand in hand. One Gospel might share something, the other one doesn't, and they really complement each other. And this is kind of a perfect example of that. They all agree that the miracle 
happened right after he fed the crowds of people. Earlier I said that Matthew and Mark, their accounts give us a little more insight to this situation. And let me share with you what I mean. If we didn't have Matthew and Mark, we would be led to believe just by reading the Gospel of John that the disciples got tired of waiting for Jesus to come down from the mountain. John's Gospel says, And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Matthew and Mark both tell us Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. According to Matthew and Mark, it was after Jesus made the disciples get in the boat that he went up on the mountainside to pray. Matthew gives us a little more info. In verse 28, Let's go there. I think it's important. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, 28 says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This is after the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water. He says, God, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And we all know what happened after that. Peter stepped out of the boat. He was walking on the sea toward Jesus until we get to verse 30, which reads, But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. There's something very important for us to recognize here. The sea was rough and beating against the boat long before the disciples ever recognized Jesus walking on the water. All three Gospels are in agreement. The wind was against them. The waters were rough and they were rowing and not getting anywhere. Even when Jesus arrived at the boat and Peter asked the Lord to call out to him, the waves were crashing and the wind was howling. Even the very moment that Peter stepped out of the boat to walk towards Jesus, there was chaos all around him. But he was walking on the sea. Only when Peter took his eyes off Jesus and focus them on the waves and the wind, a couple things happened. He became afraid and he began to sink, which ultimately led him to cry out to Jesus, save me. Think about your own life for a minute. Jesus invites you to come. He invites me to come. He doesn't always quiet the storm before the invitation. Sometimes the invitation comes in the middle 
of the storms of life. We just don't like that. At least I don't like that. I would like it if Jesus would quiet the storms of my life and give me smooth sailing for the rest of my journey. Again, there is no shortage of pastors and teachers who will tell you that once you come to Christ, sickness, trials, difficulty no longer have to be a part of your life ever again. Just turn on your TVs on Sunday morning. You will find this, I guarantee it. James 1, 2, and 3 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I could go on and on and on with Scripture to support this, but I think you get it. You can't begin in the book of Genesis and read through to the end of Revelation and ever reconcile that kind of teaching with biblical truth. You just can't do it. That kind of dishonest teaching is like a potter taking a lump of clay and pushing it around a little bit, maybe poking his finger in there a couple times, and then saying, look at that beautiful bowl I just made. It's not a bowl at all. It hasn't been transformed. God uses the difficulties of life to get our attention, right? He uses them to build faith and trust in him. And as you read through our text, and and I was thinking about this, and I, I, I wonder if the proponents of that kind of dishonest gospel, the what should we call it, uh, trouble-free gospel, I wonder if those folks ever considered that it was Jesus who sent them into the storm. Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and head out to the other side. They got in the boat in the evening, The winds began to blow and the sea became rough. They were in the middle of the sea in the dark, way off course. And then Jesus finally comes to them shortly before dawn in what Matthew and Mark describe as the fourth watch of the night. This tells us that it was between 3 and 6 a.m. the next morning. They were out on that sea for hours, quite a long time from about dark the day before till early the next morning, rowing, making very little progress. Now, where was Jesus? Where was Jesus while the disciples were in the middle of this chaos? He'd gone up on a mountain to pray. It's impossible to say he was unaware of their predicament. After all, he's God. Right. This is where Mark six gives us even a little bit more insight. Turn to the gospel of Mark and go to chapter six.
Look at verse 48. It says, Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. It says he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Why didn't Jesus do something about this predicament? All they were trying to do was go home. He did. But he did it in his time. They would have liked for Jesus to come and quiet the wind and the waves before they ever started. Before they ever started tossing the boat around. And in reality, the disciples are no different than you and I. We don't like difficulty and hardship. We would like smooth sailing. We'd like smooth sailing in our lives if at all possible. But again, God uses that difficulty and that hardship to help us become the people that he wants us to be. Remember, it was Jesus who sent them out into the Sea of Galilee. He knew the winds and the rough seas were coming. He saw them out there while the waves were crashing into their boat. He could have calmed the storm at any time, but he didn't. He could have quieted the storm while he was on the mountain praying, but he didn't. Maybe he was praying for them while they were in the storm. I don't know. I personally believe he was. I believe he was interceding for them. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Now, this is where... He's having the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's teaching them important things that they need to know. And he turns his focus to Peter. And he says, starting in verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So important that we see here that Jesus prayed that Peter's faith may not fail. He didn't tell Peter, hey, um, I told Satan that uh, your hands off, you know, that he can't touch you. No, he prayed that his faith may not fail through the sifting. When we come under attack or going through, you know, a difficult time in life, we need to remember that Jesus is praying for us. Just as he was praying for Peter and that any sifting or trial that we go through serves a purpose in our life. Because God is a God of purpose. 
He's not going to allow that difficulty in your life lightly. He cares about you. He loves you. You need to remember that He's praying for you, interceding for you, and that He's going to work it out. So if you find yourself going through a difficult time right now or or at any time, you need to redirect your thoughts. Stop thinking about the trial you're in and think about the fact that Jesus is interceding for you. Just as he was praying for the disciples in the boat, just as he was praying for Peter, he is praying for you. Hebrews 7, 24 through 26 says, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Jesus knows where you are. He sees you in your difficulty and he is praying for you. And don't forget He did make his way to the disciples on the stormy sea. Don't forget that. We just need to remember that his comforting presence may not always be immediate. But it will be right on time. In verse 20 of John 6. He says to them, it is I do not be afraid. This phrase refers to his deity, literally translated, I am, the self-revelation of God. The same name God used to reveal who he was to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and Deuteronomy 32 and, and so many other places in the scripture. He tells them, do not be afraid. This is a promise from God. Meaning we can have freedom from fear. We can have freedom from fear. Fear will grip you. It will paralyze you if you let it. Remember, our confidence is in Christ, not in our situations. So we need to encourage one another as men. Not to be afraid, but to put our confidence and trust in the Lord. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse 21 says, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now, This could be another miracle. You know, were they teleported to land instantly? That seems to be what the scripture is saying. I don't know. But there's one more interesting point here before we wrap up this section. Again, Mark gives us even more insight to this. The end of verse 48, it says, He came to them walking on the sea, And would have passed them by. 
but they cried out to him. Now, when I read this, I, I couldn't help but think, you know, would Jesus have kept on walking had they not cried out to him for help? The scripture says, and would have passed them by. But they cried out to him. Jesus was going to the other side as well. He just happened to be walking on the water. But the scripture says that he would have passed them by. Now, I don't know if he would have kept on going. I can't answer. But there is one thing I do know. There are so many people trapped in sin and difficulty. And we see them every day. We interact with them all the time. And the gospel has been shared with them. They've heard the gospel And Jesus is just patiently waiting for them to cry out to him so that he can enter their boat and calm their storm. You know, regardless of whether or not they needed or they reached their destination geographically, I believe as soon as they called out to Jesus and gladly received him into their boat, they arrived. And they were where they needed to be at that moment. Verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that, except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So the next day, the crowds are still looking for him. It says they got into boats and came to Capernaum and they found him. They expended a lot of energy looking for this man, Jesus. And they found him. Verse 59 says these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So they found him in the synagogue teaching. And when they found him, they asked him kind of a peculiar question. Rabbi, when did you come here? They want to know how in the world he got there before they did. Jesus does something very interesting. He doesn't answer their question, but he cuts right to the heart of the matter. He says in verse 26 and 27, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, 
because God the Father has set his seal on them. See, Jesus knew why the people had followed him to Capernaum. It was because he had satisfied their physical need of hunger and he had filled their stomachs. They had completely missed the point that Jesus was trying to convey to them through the sign and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. That he was more than they could ever need in life. Remember, there was 12 baskets of leftovers after feeding all the people. There's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 disciples. He, they missed the point. Jesus would satisfy their need and more. But they missed it. They wanted the product of the miracle, but completely missed the person of the miracle and what Jesus was trying to tell them. They were expending a lot of energy trying to find him. But not for the right reasons. Do you ever ask yourself the question, why am I following Jesus? Sometimes I do. And I think it's healthy. Right? The scripture encourages us to examine ourselves. And the standard response is usually because, because I love him. Because he saved me. I want to honor and serve him with, our, with my life. And these are all very good reasons. But do you ever think about how you would respond to him when he doesn't give you what you want? Or when your difficulty persists? Or you feel like it's never going to end? Or you're dealing with a situation that just won't go away? No matter what you do, it just seems like it's just there. And you can't do anything about it, no matter how much effort you put into it. We're called to love God even in these most difficult of times. Not just when our bellies are full and life is good. Jesus' answer to them here is a sharp rebuke of their lack of spiritual concern. As we'll, we'll see in a few verses down, they may have seen a source of food here comparable to the manna that God provided to the Israelites in the desert for 40 years during the time of Moses. Now, many of these people were probably poor, maybe very poor, and they saw Jesus as a source of free food on a daily basis. I mean, my goodness, he can feed all these people with five loaves and two fish? And, you know, you have to imagine that the the ability to acquire a meal back then was probably a big deal. And, you know, they wanted to confirm that he had the ability to provide this free food. You know, before they, they wanted to commit, you know, they, they want to make sure that, you know, that, hey, this guy, is he for real or, or what? Jesus knew what was motivating them. And he tried to use the subject of food to help them understand who he was and what it was that he was truly offering them. 
He tells them that they should be more concerned about the kind of food that never perishes, but continues to provide for them eternally. In short, he offers them food that will give them eternal life, not just fill their stomachs temporarily. He can offer this because he brings it from his Father in heaven. The seal on Jesus placed by the Father is God's mark of authentication. Jesus is the one who had the seal of God stamped on him, if you will. I don't know how else to put it. You know, like when you buy something at the store and they've got the little special seal on the box and it tells you it's the genuine article. Jesus had that seal from the Father. And that is what he's trying to make these people understand. So because they had this this religion by works concept, obviously here as we read, they asked Jesus what they have to do to work the works of God and receive this eternal life. You know, when I was a young Christian, um, I used to, excuse me, I used to wonder, you know, what, Lord, what, you, what do you want me to do? You know, we talk about, you know, getting involved in ministry. They encourage us to get involved in ministry, and you should. And you wonder, what, what can I do? You know, what do I need to do? And I think that's probably the question I've asked of God more than any other. And I used to think that God was just waiting for me to do the right thing or to believe the right thing so that I'd be in the right position to receive what he had for me. But it's not true. It's not true. Jesus tells them that there's nothing anyone can do to earn eternal life. And the only thing that's required is to believe on him whom the Father has sent. This is such an amazing answer. Jesus is the most masterful teacher. It eliminates any possibility that there's something we have to offer God which will so impress him that he'll look down and say, oh, that's my boy. Oh, those men at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, they got it going on. No. The reason Jesus says that the work that God desires for us is to believe in the one who he sent is because he's the one who's done the one thing that could be done for our redemption. God's requirement for you to get to heaven is absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. That's why Jesus had to come and live the perfect life and give himself for you and I. And then... God looks at Jesus when he looks at you. He sees that perfection. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do good works, okay? We're called to do good works. But our good works are not for the purpose of earning anything. They come about as a response to what God has done for us and an evidence of what God is doing in us. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 4 and 5, many other scriptures. We know that salvation comes by grace through faith, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. We don't work for salvation. Look at verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You know, there are times when the ignorance displayed by the Jews is really hard to believe. Okay? And if it weren't for the ignorance of the atheist or the non-believer or the scientist or the evolutionist that I hear today, it would be really, really hard for me to swallow. But I have to remember that that's simply the nature of the unregenerate mind. How could they ask for a sign or a miracle so that they could believe what Jesus was telling them when he had just the day before performed a most incredible miracle? No one else but God could have done what Jesus did. The sign had already been given. So look at what Jesus does here. Just like in verse 26, he doesn't answer their question, but again, cuts right to the heart of the matter and makes two statements. First, he tells them it wasn't Moses who supplied the bread. It was God. And second, the manna in the wilderness was not the true bread of God. The manna that came down from heaven while the Hebrews were wandering in the wilderness, only sustained them for a little while. Each day, they had to go out and gather up more manna to make it through the day, and they were given very specific instructions on how to do this. You find that um, in verse 49... Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. And then just nine verses later in this same chapter, he says, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread, speaking of himself, will live forever. Jesus uses the everyday things of life to teach really important, eternally significant lessons to those who have ears to hear. Jesus tells a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 that he would give her living water and she would never thirst again. He tells these people here he would give them bread from heaven that they will endure to everlasting life. He uses the most basic human needs to teach people about their deepest spiritual needs in life. 
If you read verse 34, apparently they still don't understand. They're still looking for physical bread that they can eat. So it's necessary here for Jesus to say this clearly so there will be no misunderstanding. Verse 35 records the first of the great I am statements of Jesus. And then the following verses give greater detail. What the bread of life means. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Isn't it amazing how Jesus uses these very basic things that we can understand to teach us the deep spiritual things that we need to know? Think about bread. Think about water. They, they sustain you. It's, it's sustenance. Bread and water. Think about when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. What did Satan say to him? He said, if you're God, command these stones to be turned to bread. Jesus was hungry. He was out there a long time. What does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Right? So it was necessary for them to understand that Jesus was speaking of spiritual, not physical food. Verses 36 through 40. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That all that of all he has given me... I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus says to them, You've seen me, yet you do not believe. These people have been given a sign to prove that Jesus was the one that God promised to send, and they simply ignored it. I don't think there could have been a greater sign or one that could make it more clear that Jesus was the one. Maybe they suffered from a, maybe a, an inability to believe or maybe a refusal to believe. Remember, they were looking for a Messiah that would free them from Roman rule and establish Israel as a political and military power in the region. And Jesus gave no indication of being such a conqueror. Maybe they didn't want to believe that this man, Jesus, was the one God had sent to be their savior. Why else would they not be convinced by the miracle they had just seen? Why else? And it perhaps maybe some of them had seen Many more of Jesus' miracles up to this point. Jesus then proceeds to state that although they did not believe him, his work would not be in vain because others would come to him and be saved. Now, these last four verses are claimed by some to be difficult to interpret. 
Some take Jesus' words specifically in verses 37 and 39 to imply the doctrine doctrine of predestination or divine election or, or commonly known as Calvinism, whatever you want to call it. Now, for the sake of being fair and balanced, I'm not going to give you a detailed description of each camp, Calvinism, Arminianism. It would be too lengthy. We don't have the time. But in a nutshell, Calvinists believe that God created some to be saved and some to be damned to hell. Now, in my opinion, and we hear about this a lot over the pulpit here, in my opinion, such a doctrine does not fit the character of God as he reveals himself in the whole of Scripture. The Bible reveals God as a perfect being of love, but it also reveals him as a perfect being of judgment. He opens opportunities for love and forgiveness to all. And he warns all that those who refuse his love will undergo his judgment. Judging a person without giving them an opportunity to believe in him, repent, and accept that forgiveness he offers through Christ is contrary to the image that God has revealed to me through his word. What do you do with John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's just one verse. There are so many. God desires that no one should perish but all come to repentance, right? What do you do with those, those verses if you're a Calvinist? I don't know. I think the word of God and common sense go hand in hand. And when you try to manipulate the scripture to establish and continue a doctrine, you're on dangerous ground. Let me suggest to you that verses 37 through 40 does not present a God revealing a doctrine by which he selects the people who will be saved to send to Jesus and then sends the rest off to hell. But rather a God providing all people the opportunity for salvation. I don't know a lot about predestination and free will. I know a little bit. Does the Bible make mention of predestination? Yes. Does the Bible make mention of free will or human responsibility? Absolutely. I want to take one in each hand and I want to move forward loving and serving God and others and then ask God to give me wisdom. John sums it up here in verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. See, in this verse, what do Calvinists do with this verse? And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, everyone may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
you're smart guys. I don't think I have to make it any more clear. The will of God is for everyone to invite Jesus into their life as their personal Savior. That's what the Bible teaches. And when Christ comes again, those believers will be given a new body that will last throughout all eternity. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm 54 years old. And I'll tell you, when I hit 50, things started to change, you know. Um, So I'm looking forward to this new body. Uh, I can't wait. So, guys, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't take your focus off him for one second. Because if you do, there's no shortage of the world, the flesh and the devil. They will come at you. They'll come at you with a vengeance. Make sure you're following Christ for the right reasons. Right? Remember, if Jesus tells you to get in the boat, what does our pastor say? Stay in the boat. You're going to get to the other side, right? When the difficulty is there and it persists and you're going through something and to you, it's just like you can't believe this is happening. God knows. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. You need to be patient and trust him. Have faith. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, Lord. Again, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, Lord. Just the amazing truth, just the masterful teaching that you have, Lord. Such simple things with such deep meanings. Father, I pray for each man here, Lord. Father, if anyone is going through a trial a difficult time, Lord, I just lift them to you and I pray that you set your hand upon them, Lord, that you put a hedge about them, Lord. Father, that you would tear down the strongholds that just keep them down, Lord. Father, if anybody's struggling with their health, Lord, that you would just restore health to their body and and joy to their spirit. Father, we love you. We thank you that we can serve you. Lord, help us to love one another, Father. Teach us how to love the way that you do. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.